is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Winter surge well underway in the U.S. We've got new records. About a million cases recorded Monday surpassed the old record, 590,000. That was just last week. Can the healthcare system withstand all these cases and hospitalizations? If that's not bad enough, there's a new variant in southern France. Some people are worried about that. And then hospitals are having a tough time finding enough of the Pfizer and Merck COVID pills just as they get filled up with patients. Students are exhausted, stressed, burned out from the pandemic. A lot of them struggling with mental health issues and the constant changes when it comes to schools and closing. And then finally, COVID has exposed some major holes in America's system of caregiving for the elderly and those in need. We tackle all of that today, but we start with the staggering numbers of new cases and infections. Dr. Edward Jones-Lopez is an infectious disease specialist with Keck Medicine of USC. I spoke to him along with Rob Archer. Have you ever seen any kind of viral outbreak that moves as quickly as this, as this explosion of Omicron? I think it's worthwhile to just briefly talk about the historical perspective. You know, this is a new variant that was detected maybe five weeks ago in South Africa. And it very quickly replaced previous variants. The previous one immediately before this one was Delta. That was already thought to be more infectious, more transmissible than previous uh, variants before that. No? So the history of this epidemic, uh, not, not unsurprisingly, has been that a, a new variant replaces the previous one and so on. Uh, this one in particular is uh, hyper-transmissible, and that's probably a combination of the virus itself and also a change, a major change in social patterns, meaning much more interaction between humans. Uh, largely because of vaccines and lowering the guard because of that. Yeah. So what do the projections show? Obviously, a sharp peak means that a lot of people get infected. When you run the numbers, even if it's a more mild type illness, the sheer amount of people can still overwhelm the hospitals. But timing wise, I mean, do we expect that this could be something that's relatively quick because it does spread so fast? I mean, if we do follow the South Africa model or maybe, you know, what we think they're seeing in the UK? Yeah, that is correct. Actually, there's some data, emerging data. Again, we only have about five, maybe six weeks of observation before this particular variant. And it first appeared or was first detected or reported from South Africa. And within a few weeks now, there's some data from South Africa also that is somewhat waning. So a very big exponential jump in cases and then a quick uh, drop in cases. And it's expected to have a similar epidemiological um, scenario in other countries and in England also the same thing is happening you know so difficult to know exactly what's going to happen but based on these two examples and maybe others that are emerging uh, it is expected to have a very large increase in cases now an important point to make here and I think you mentioned it is that although this particular variant is much more transmissible causing many more cases uh, it's broken records throughout the world it's much less virulent and there's some data now suggesting why that is, um, and that's very interesting and important. Um, so it's very likely that the combination of a virus that is less virulent and the amount of people, particularly in countries where there's access to vaccines, the combination of immunity through vaccines and natural infections actually is going to expect it, uh, it's going to have a much less dramatic increase in hospitalizations and deaths in particular. So not everything is bad news uh, within this particular new variant. 
All right, a quick question. You know, government officials, I think they're kind of afraid of the pushback they're going to get. Uh, they're saying, uh, we're not going to lock down this time. We're not going to do, uh, you know, closed businesses or anything. Is, is, that the, is that the right move or the wrong move? Should we lock down to, to stop this Omicron variant? Yeah, so that's, those are the very key questions that are actually um, causing a lot of debate. There's a lot of discussions among uh, people who know what exactly to do. What I can tell you is that the previous recommendations that were developed over several months at the beginning of the epidemic are no longer applicable uh, in many ways. You know? It's clear now that the virus is really among us. Uh, before, there was a lot of emphasis on household transmission or small group transmission. You may remember that the first evidence of uh, outside of household or certain group transmission was in the nursing homes in Seattle back in the very beginning of the epidemic. And that really meant there was already what is called community transmission. And that was a very ominous sign that the virus was really very much established in the US and in other countries. And now it's very clear just from the sheer number of cases that are occurring, there's most of the transmission now is at the community level. So it's really impossible impossible at this point to really interrupt transmission at a at a population level. No? Dr. So, Edward uh, Jones-Lopez, we're out of time. We've got to run infectious disease specialist, Keck Medicine of USC. Doctor, thanks. All right. Word of yet another variant out there, possibly in circulation. 46 mutations on this one. This was discovered in southern France. Concern, maybe it's as transmissible as Delta, but maybe more severe as well. So how worried should we be? Rob and I talked with Dr. Brian Labus, epidemiologist and professor in UNLV's School of Public Health. And uh, first question was, how worried should we be? Well, we continue to see variants pop up all over the world. Uh, it still remains to be seen if this variant means anything or is just one of the many that we've seen that goes nowhere. So at this point, we're watching that to see if it means anything, but it's a little too early to, to be super concerned about it. Yeah, there's some discussion, at least on the, you know, epidemiologist Twitter saying this actually probably predates Omicron and you can't really compete with Omicron. So it's probably not anything of consequence. But to your point, I mean, we're going to end up seeing more than these or more of these. So I guess we come down to the scenario of every time we hear about one, we don't necessarily need to freak out. Right. It's just kind of a wait and see like we did with the one that we're dealing with right now. Exactly. Uh, Delta and Omicron are the ones that people are aware of, but we've had a lot more variants than that popping up all over the world. We track them when we find these new variants because of the potential to be a problem, but until we see them actually doing something in the real world, we can't really get concerned about them. It really comes down to how well this new variant can compete against what else is out there. And if it doesn't spread more easily, then the other variants just bypass it and it kind of loses the game and that's the end of it. Are these new variants that uh, are uh, spread faster and are more dangerous, did we avoid the chance to stop them before we got them, or was this going to happen anyway? In other words, if everybody had gotten vaccinated when the pandemic first began and maybe we had stopped the spread of it then, would that have stopped these variants or would they have happened anyway? Well, variants are a, a natural process that occur. We get mutations when viruses multiply. The more people that are infected, the more chances there are for these new variants to pop up. So in many ways, if we had vaccinated everybody on the first day it was available and stopped a lot of the transmission, we would stop the number of variants that were popping out. But as long as there's any transmission, variants are always going to arise because that's just the nature of viruses.
What do we know about Omicron and then reinfection with another variant? Because it seems like if you had Delta, you can still get Omicron because people in South Africa seemed to do that. But is the jury still out on what it means for, for people who, who go through Omicron, either, you know, breakthrough or they get it for real and then something else comes down the line and we have to wait and see what happens there? Well, we've only been dealing with Omicron around the world for the last three or four weeks. So we really don't know what happens after people get Omicron. It's really too early to say because they haven't had a chance to be exposed to anything else. Uh, we don't know how that immunity lasts. We don't know that much about it other than uh, the numbers are increasing. We'll just have to wait and see what it means for our immunity long term. Uh, there was uh, some scientists were saying that because Omicron spreads so quickly, that might also bring a silver lining and that it might burn itself out quickly as well. Uh, are we going to see this with this new variant or is it is it uh, just slow enough that it's not going to burn out fast? Well, it depends on how quickly that variant spread compared to Omicron or whatever else is out there. So if that new variant can't spread faster than Omicron, it's not going to get a foothold. It's not going to go anywhere. And Omicron will be the one that we continue to deal with. It's basically a race among viruses to infect people, but it's not spreading so quickly that it's going to burn itself overnight. Uh, the other thing you have to think of is for that to happen, it would have to infect everybody and it doesn't move that quickly. We've been dealing with this for two years now and the whole world has not been infected by this virus yet. I can't imagine Omicron would do that in a matter of a couple of weeks. Is there some scenario where every winter, once this becomes, you know, more endemic, that there's a new variant and then we target it like we do the flu with the yearly shot? That's entirely possible. The, the way it mutates is different than what we see with the flu. Um, but we do get on average about two mutations a month uh, showing up in coronavirus. It, it does not mutate as quickly. Um, but it is something that we would uh, potentially be dealing with every winter uh, will reach some sort of equilibrium between humans and the virus. And it'll be one of those, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's COVID season. So you have to do X, Y, and Z to protect yourself, just like we say every year for, for the flu. We're not at that point yet. We're still seeing these new variants happening and seeing a lot of disease spread, continual outbreaks of these things. Until we reach that equilibrium, though, uh, it's, it's not going to be kind of an annual thing. We'll continue to have these waves uh, until we reach that equilibrium point. Dr. Brian Labus, epidemiologist, professor, UNLV's School of Public Health. Short break, and then, just when they're needed the most, uh, we can't get those pills from Pfizer and Merck. Hospitals in the country having trouble finding enough of the COVID treatment pills, especially the Pfizer pill. It's, of course, horrible timing as they're starting to fill up some more because of all the infections. Rob Archer and I with Dr. Thomas Yadigar, the medical director of the intensive care unit at Providence Cedars Sinai and Tarzana. So these pills were just approved by the FDA. Are there supplies that are out there? It's not difficult to, to find them. Uh, it's impossible to find them. Uh, they, uh, even though they were approved, uh, I think about 10 to 14 days ago, there isn't a single pharmacy that has them available at this time. So what's the holdup? Is it supply chain? Is it they, they haven't manufactured enough yet? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Um, unfortunately, even besides the COVID pills, the monoclonal antibody infusion, which also reduced the need for hospitalization by 90%, those have become incredibly scarce as well. Um, I've been using those for the past year since they received its emergency use authorization, but it's even more difficult to get them January of 2022 than it was January of 2021. Does that have to do with more people being in the hospitals and more people needing that right now? Or, or what are you hearing or what kind of guidance are you getting, if anything? 
I think partly it is due to the fact that many more people are developing COVID-19 due to Omicron and the fact that it is so much more transmissible. But, you know, at this point, we've, we're almost two years into this pandemic and um, there's really no excuse for it. I think this should have been, um, you know, expected that we were going to be in this situation and we should have infusion centers with, uh, you know, monoclonal antibody infusion widely accept, uh, uh, um, available as well as the oral pills widely available. Because again, um, obviously it's important the number of cases that we have, but more important is the number of hospitalizations and deaths. And these interventions you know, decrease the number of hospitalizations by 90%. Is there a concern among uh, doctors and some health experts that if these COVID treatment pills do eventually get out there and they are available, that it will lead to some, like some of the vaccine denying people like to say, I'm still not going to get the vaccine, and if I get sick with COVID, I'll just take the treatment pill. Is there a worry that that might eat into the supply that we have for people who who manage to get sick because they can't take the vaccine? You know, that might be a concern, but I think that's still a minority of patients. I think at this point, um, anyone who's going to get the vaccine probably would have gotten it by now. And I think there will still be, you know, 20, 25 percent of people who will hold out. But um, what we're seeing is that, you know, it's obviously the vaccinated uh, are not the patients that are getting admitted to the hospitals um, as, as high as a frequency as the unvaccinated. But there are still patients who are susceptible, even though they're vaccinated. Those are the patients that are um, elderly, have chronic medical conditions, and uh, those treatments would be incredibly important to keep them out of the hospital. Does this turn into like a next winter thing almost instead of a this winter thing like we had hoped or maybe some had expected that you know if COVID's still with us and then you can go get your Tamiflu pill you know next winter but sorry it's not going to help you for the next month or two. Well I, I wish I could I could say it's going to be next winter but I think more likely if you're looking at the past two years it, you know there is a summer spike as well as a winter surge so I think you know hopefully we'll have our act together for what may come in the summertime in July and August. Uh, looking down the road, is there a, a chance that maybe some of these uh, COVID treatment pills, uh, as we learn to live, because we're going to wind up living with the coronavirus. It's never going to go away. Uh, could some of these treatment pills eventually be something sold over the counter, like you have uh, treatment for uh, severe colds? Well, they do have some side effects, and um, they are restricted for the high-risk patients. So someone who's young and healthy in their 20s uh, doesn't really require them. Um, at this point, you know, it's for high-risk patients, and they do need uh, at least a physician evaluation to make sure that there aren't any uh, contraindications to their use. Dr. Thomas Yadigar there, Medical Director of the Intensive Care Unit, Providence Cedar sinai in Tarzana. Doctor, thanks for talking to us, and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. American kids have suffered extreme life disruptions over the course of the pandemic. Schools went remote for over a year. Sports leagues, after-school activities, those were canceled. Friendships were put on hold during lockdown. Lots of kids and college students have suffered mental health problems throughout all of this, and uh, it's pandemic burnout, too. Rob and I also spoke with Dr. Norman Freed, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University. Are we adults hurting our kids just to protect ourselves? Because that's how some people are describing all of this. Well, thank you for having me, Rob and Mike. I appreciate the question. Um, the answer is that from a psychological perspective, from the perspective of a child psychologist, it's very important that every one of us understands that we are all learning how to live in a difficult life. 
and that sometimes things are imperfect. And unfortunately, this is imperfect. And our children are benefiting from learning more about how to get, how to navigate difficult experiences rather than putting them at risk physically. Now, I'm not going to give you my political thoughts, but from a psychological nature, keeping the kids home in the name of not exposing them to potential illness might be less deleterious to their psyche than letting them go, get sick, and find out what it feels like to be ill. It's never ideal, but the job of adulthood is to learn how to deal perfectly with imperfect situations. And this is a time of life when our kids are learning that very task. I think we've got a whole camp of parents though going, okay, no, because I'm never gonna wanna go back to the at-home learning. So how do I square that, especially for the child, if they're going back and forth and back and forth, because then that's not fun for them either. Um, and different ages have different problems, right? Because for a, a little one, you've got to try and explain that. And then for, you know, a college student or, or a high schooler, they're still probably at this point of maybe it's some deja vu now because it's almost like they got a little slice of life where it was normal. And now they're like, oh, no, are we going back to, to last year again? Exactly. And unfortunately, the answer could be yes. Right now in this country, depending upon the state, there are different uh, different rules about that. And some schools are hybrid, some schools are still in person, some schools are not. But I want to say to you, since you're asking me not as a parent, and I am a parent of three, but also as a psychologist, that from a psychological perspective, the parents that are struggling might be unhappy with the fact that they have to now find ways to accommodate their children who are not able to go to school. But that is not as important as what is their mental well-being as well as their physical well-being which is that we raise our children in a way that teaches them how to accommodate to difficult situations. It's never easy in this life. Things will be challenging and things don't go as we wish. Oftentimes grades don't go as we wish. Oftentimes kids don't get into the particular sport that they want or the part in the school play. And we have to teach them that this is a challenge that we will muddle through and prevail. And I'm so sorry that there are competing thoughts on this. And I'm not speaking for other parents other than to say that it is more of a psychological deficit to allow children to become ill and watch their friends, some of them not do so well while others, God willing, do, versus children who are at times experiencing malaise and fatigue because they can't go back to school right now. You called it deja vu, absolutely. Unfortunately, there are things in this life that will repeat themselves. Some, God willing, are good. Some, unfortunately, are not so good. You know, you kind of uh, hinted at this earlier, and I want to touch on it. Uh, maybe an argument can be made that uh, kids having to grow up dealing with this and all the changing rules, and now we've got a variant that's more dangerous, and now we have to shut schools down again for a little while, and we're going back and forth and back and forth, and the rules keep changing. Uh, maybe there's an argument to be made that when these kids live through this and survive this and grow up, that they will become stronger people because they'll be better able to deal with changing situations and figuring out how to respond to dangerous situations when you don't always know what the rules are going to be tomorrow. Well, I really appreciate you saying that, and your reframe is very generous and validating to me as a psychologist, and I want to say to you that I agree, and that's because we think we're raising children, but we're really raising them to become adults, 
And childhood might last 18 years, but God willing, adulthood lasts another 70. And we want to make sure that our kids are prepared for the 70 years ahead. And sometimes in those years, there are challenges. There are people who will lose their job. There will people who lose their spouse. There are people who will get sick. Life will have its challenges. And if we can't teach our children how to prevail through the difficulties when they're young, they're going to have a harder time doing so when they're older. It's not ideal. I'm not fatalistic, but I'm realistic in recognizing that even children have to deal with life events. Some of my patients have gone through trauma, the loss of a parent, the loss of a sibling. Some of them grow up in war-torn nations with attacks coming from overhead. They become accommodated and learn how to prevail. And when we think this isn't fair to them, the answer is correct. It's not fair. But that's not what life is about. The psychological well-being of our children is not about making it perfect for them. It's about helping them deal when it's not perfect. Dr. Norman Freed, clinical psychologist, professor at Columbia University. COVID has a knack for exposing weaknesses in the society over the last uh, couple of years. Here's another one. Problems in caregiving, whether it's day-to-day care for young kids or looking after the vulnerable, the seniors. COVID has already taken the shaky systems and pushed them to the brink. Dr. Julie Morita, Executive Vice President at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation with KYW's Matt Leon. When we talk about care systems, what exactly are we talking about? Kind of what falls under that umbrella? That's a great question, Matt. I think when we think about care it's uh and we talk about it a lot we take for granted that people understand what that means and they don't so you know when we talk about care we're talking about child care in a child care center in a home or in another informal setting we also mean about home health care for people who are sick or for people who are elderly in care and support for people living with disabilities all those things fit into the care um, community and caregiving community so what is the state of the caregiving community right now as we are closing in on two years into a pandemic? Well, I think when we think about it, even at baseline before the pandemic, parents of more than 2 million children under the age of five had to quit a job, not take a job, or greatly change their job because of problems with child care. So child care is not just a problem because of the pandemic. We had problems prior to the pandemic, and they've been exacerbated by the pandemic. And it, you know, we know that Low-income families can pay up to one-fifth of their salaries on child care alone, and that's a lot to have to pay and then have to put a house, a roof over your head, pay for food, pay for clothing, pay for health care services, all those kinds of things. And our child care providers and the workers themselves are among the lowest paid in every state. So it's in both ends. It's the challenges that families have in terms of securing care for their loved ones, but it's also the child care providers and what they're able to provide for themselves um, in terms of living wage, in terms of health care services, in terms of paid and family and sick leave. All these issues need to be addressed and need to be strengthened for us to be as stronger as a nation. I'm curious because I've talked to a lot of people and you hear the, the same things. People aren't being paid enough, yet it is so expensive to find child care. Where is the disconnect? All this money's going in, but we don't have enough to pay these people what they deserve. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of really how much we value these services. I think what the pandemic has done, you pointed this out, the pandemic really has made clear that we are dependent on our childcare providers so that we can work. 
so that families can really make their own livings. We are dependent on these childcare providers. And when these childcare centers closed and were inaccessible, people had to drop out of the workplace. We still have millions of mothers of children who have had have remained out of the workplace. And that may change as we move forward because of vaccine availability for younger children. But for right now, we still have many women that are still not in the workplace because they couldn't secure the appropriate childcare services that are necessary. But to make those services really what they need to be, the highest quality and accessible for all, we really need to ensure that the caregivers themselves earn a living wage, that they have paid family and medical leave. We as workers in the workforce need to have childcare care for their families and take care of themselves as well. I know when we had our child who's nine now, we weighed the cost-benefit analysis of whether it was worth daycare or should my wife stop working. And Basically, it would have been a financial wash, so we decided for her not to work and he could stay home. I get it. I've seen it firsthand. It's so expensive. Where does that money go? It's so expensive, but the people that work at a child care center are making $12, $13. Is it all overhead that it costs to, to run one of these things, or is part of the problem that we don't quite know what, where that disconnect is? I mean, I think it's, it is, I don't know that it's consistent across the board. And I think that so uh, in some places you have to pay uh, really high prices for the care. In other places, you're not paying as high a price. The key thing from my perspective is that what happened with the American Rescue Plan Act, and also we can see included in the Build Back Better plan is also that there's some provisions that are in there to increase subsidies so that parents can afford the child care providers and services that they need. So in addition, for the American Rescue Plan in particular, there, were, there was a stabilization funding that became available to actually help those child care providers um, bring back some of the workers who left um, because they didn't have enough funding to support them. They also had provided funding to them so they could actually put the protections in place to have kids back in the, the group environment. But on top of that, there were some the child care and development block grant funding made available subsidies for families who couldn't necessarily afford the child care services that they needed. So that was built in the American Rescue Plan Act. That was great. That's a real acknowledgement of the value and the need for high quality child care services. The Build Back Better provisions include things like universal pre-K for all children. And that's awesome. That's really, really incredible, making it affordable for people, for people to have their three and four-year-olds in pre-K. In pre they also put a cap on childcare expenses for um, children under six, so it's only 7% of a family's income for the vast majority of families. So there's provisions that are built into the Build Back Better Act that actually allow for um, people to access these childcare services and not have to use up all their funding so they don't have enough money for food or healthcare services or for housing. So the act itself, we're very hopeful that those provisions remain in the act when it's actually approved so that we can actually have these kinds of supports. It's thrilling to see that there's this acknowledgement of how important caregiving actually is in this administration. And so we're hopeful that this will move forward in the way that we want it to. To that point that the lights are finally going on with people, that this needs to be addressed. Why did it get to this point as a society where it kind of took a global pandemic to rip the Band-Aid off? Is this the case of the people making the decisions, making the legislation, aren't affected by it, so there's some lip service, but they don't think it's that big a plan? It just seems like so critical to everything. And even if you look at it through a purely cynical economic lens, you know, without any thought to the human cost, the development of young children and stuff like that, 
you talk about people dropping out of the workforce. It's a, it can be a drag on the economy. Why haven't we addressed this seriously for as long as it has been a problem? <laughs> That's such a great question, Matt, but I don't think it just applies to caregiving. I think it, the pandemic itself just revealed lots of flaws within our systems and our structures that we have, we have, what the pandemic did is really help us to see how um, our systems and our structures don't allow for certain parts of our population to be able to thrive, even at baseline. And then when there's a pandemic, it just reveals the flaws even more, more so. And so it's our public health system. It's our caregiving systems. The pandemic itself, sometimes it just takes a crisis to reveal what the flaws are and for us to say, this is not tolerable. This is not, we can't accept this. We really need to change things. And I think that's what's happened with this pandemic is that we've seen that the public health system was not supported in the way it needed to be. So we need to increase resources and support for them, not just now during the crisis, but for the long haul. And then what it revealed is that we are so dependent the nation, the country is really dependent on our caregiving um, economy to help us to be able to survive through pandemics, but also to really provide the basic essentials for much of our population. So our communities of color, our low-income communities, these are the communities who've been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, but who are, are really having a hard time making ends meet, having their basic needs being met at baseline. And it takes a crisis sometimes for us to really to see these faults and to see the systemic and structural challenges that need to we have ahead of us. What I'm hoping for is a Build Back Better Act that actually includes the provisions that will tear down some of these structures and systems and rebuild them in a way that allow us to be a better nation overall. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 